0: Good news here. Bon appetit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here in these spaces this morning. And we pray truly that we would hear from you. Give us your Holy Spirit, O Lord, to illumine this, your very word. Bring us into the presence of Jesus. Would we know that he gives, that he forgives that he gathers to himself and sends out into the world. Father, we come here this morning from various places of sorrow and joy. We come here from various places of doubt and faith. Would you meet us wherever we are with good news? We pray, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. All through growing up for me, my favorite teacher was also my most strict. A couple of you have heard me talk before about Mr. Drago. Here we go again. Mr. Drago taught me Latin in seventh grade. Mr. Drago taught me Latin in eighth grade. Mr. Drago taught me Latin in ninth grade. Mr. Drago taught me Latin in tenth grade. Mr. Drago taught me Latin in eleventh grade. And Mr. Drago taught me Latin in 12th grade. Monday through Friday, Mr. Drago taught six classes every day. And a lot of you here in the room and watching online, you're in education, teachers or otherwise, that's six different classes each day. Not you're teaching six class periods, but it might only be a couple of different classes, lesson plans. Six different lesson plans every day. The guy was a complete maniac. He would run literally 10 miles a day, way before dawn. He would get to school at 5.30 every morning. And in addition to making all of those lesson plans, he was never an adopter of word processing. We had a Latin quiz every day. 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, I had a Latin quiz every day. And to this day, I have nightmares or dreams when somewhere in my dream, I think to myself, I can't believe it, I haven't studied for my Latin quiz today yet. How did I forget again? I had one job, one job only, to study for Latin, and I blew it. So Mr. Drago would hand-write six quizzes every day, Xerox them, hand-grade and record six quizzes every day. He was a special kind of person. And based on that work ethic, we had a ton of respect for him and his personal disciplines, which we probably needed to be able to bear with the extreme amount of discipline that he exercised in the classroom. Mr. Drago's classroom was a different world. It was on the main hallway of the high school, and main hallways of high schools. there's a lot of hustle, there's a lot of bustle, there's a lot of noise. But when you walk into Mr. Drago's room, It's quiet. It's museum quiet. It's mausoleum quiet. It's so quiet that you think there is not a sufficient number of atoms in this room that have electrons by which sound can actually be transmitted (laughs) throughout empty spaces. It was really, really quiet in there. And Mr. Drago, at the beginning of every class and periodically during class, he would pace around the front of the room with a huge yardstick, Sometimes using it as a cane, other times going like this with it. He never used it against a student. You'll be shocked at this point to know that Mr. Drago was a product of the Catholic school system, mid 20th century in New Orleans. But he would walk around the front of the room mumbling to himself, insanis est. Insanis est. And that means he is insane. He is insane. And here's a pro tip for you. If you think you're going crazy and want to scare other people, it's much more scarier to say, Insanis est, he is insane, than to say Insanis sum, I am insane. Third person really gets the job done when you want to communicate how incredibly crazy you are. So, Mr. Drago's classroom, forget about it. There's no talking. Only when you're called upon. You don't even think about talking in Mr. Drago's class, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There is no slouching in Mr. Drago's class. You need to sit absolutely upright in the chair, and there are only three places where your eyes are allowed to rest during Mr. Drago's class. On Mr. Drago, on the chalkboard, or on your desk if it's time to look down and either read or write. That's the way that it is. And if you mess up in any of these ways, you have to serve detention. Our school had a detention system where school ended at 3.30 every day. 3.35 sharp is detention. When you go to the detention room, have to turn your desk around. It doesn't matter if you have after-school sports, doesn't matter if your parents are picking you up. You had to clear your schedule, 3.35, go to the detention room, turn your desk around, and stare at a particular space on the wall for a half an hour, and there was only one teacher every day that ran detention. It was Mrs. Johnson. I'm kidding, it was Mr. Drago. (laughs) The guy was a piece of work. But there was one deviation every couple of weeks in class when things were not quite the regular routine. We had a vocab quiz, Latin vocabulary, we learned some new words over the past couple of weeks, so we're gonna get quizzed on all of them at once. And instead of a regular lesson plan that day, there was a couch in Mr. Drago's room, and Mr. Drago would call up, one by one, students to sit on the couch, Mr. Drago on one end, the other student on the other. And I have no idea why this was so incredibly nerve-wracking to me, but you would watch Mr. Drago, with his red pen, grade your quiz. And I, I swear to you, to this day, he was playing with you when he'd, with his pen, hover around something, and you'd think he was going in for a red mark, but then he'd go, hmm, and then move down to the to the next one, and it was never instructed to the class, this is how you're supposed to sit on the couch. Intuitively, the students just knew. Even though Mr. Drago was sitting on the couch, for him at least, fairly casually, arm on the side, maybe he'd cross his leg, students had to sit, absolutely perched on the edge straight. But there was this kid in class, friend of ours named Jeff. At a certain point in high school, we'd had Mr. Drago for a number of years at that point, Jeff said, guys, Next time, there's going to be a Latin quiz, and we go to the couch, I'm going to plop. I'm going to plop. And we were like, Jeff, you can't do that. Don't do it, Jeff. Mr. Drago's going to kill you if you just plop and lounge around on that couch. It's going to be Mr. Drago in the classroom with the yardstick. You're not going to make it out of here alive. But then Jeff would turn around and say, Yeah, on second thought, I'm not going to plop. But we're like, Jeff, you've got to plop. Do it, man, do it. It's going to be great. So finally, vocab quiz came. And even though we had to sit forward, we were trying to rearrange our facial construction so that somehow without turning our heads, our eyes could migrate to the side of our body like certain animals and birds and stuff. I assume they can do that. To see Jeff plop. And so he did did, and you could hear the frame and the spring sagging as Jeff plopped on the couch. and This is what Mr. Drago did. First he looked up, then he looked at Jeff and said, don't get too comfortable. <laughs> and immediately Jeff startled Bolt upright again, and I don't think he took a breath for the next ten minutes of class, and so for the rest of high school, We made fun of Jeff, what are we supposed to do? We'd say, Jeff, don't get too comfortable. Hey, Jeff, don't get too comfortable. He'd be like, shut up. Hold that thought. It's Christmas season right now. And maybe for you, in the midst of Christmas season, Christmas doesn't quite have the pop that it used to have. They don't make Christmas like they used to. And maybe you used to have all of these great experiences in the midst of Christmas, but those moments are fewer and farther between. And sure, there's a lump of coal that COVID has given us again this year, but maybe it's more than that at the same time. When we used to have these moments at some point or another during Christmas when the world seems right, and we know our place in it, and we have these brief glimmers of touchdown Christmas, but it seems not to be happening anymore. Here is the thesis statement for this Sunday. Maybe you're getting too comfortable with Christmas. Maybe for us, part of the message of Christmas, of this Advent season, should be, don't get too comfortable. Maybe, actually, we should sit up a little bit straighter. And if you're a follower of Jesus, and you're drifting a little bit, just kind of floating along, Maybe you should zero in and press a little bit more into the reality of this season. Maybe you're somebody that's skeptical of spiritual realities or seeking. Could this be true for me? All of this stuff that I've heard as white noise for so many years about the church and Advent and Jesus. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's real. Might you press into the source of this season? We have here this morning in the verses that I just read, the visit of the wise men, the visit of the magi, to the child Jesus. And to me, one of the primary upshot questions of this passage for us is, are you getting too comfortable? Are we getting too comfortable? This is such a familiar passage, whether you grew up in the church or not, by and large. But there are some surprises here. Don't get too comfortable with this story, because if you do we'll actually miss the comfort of what this season is supposed to be all about. And we'll miss Jesus' mission too. So, three parts for the rest of the sermon. Don't get too comfortable with Jesus, the surprising king, and we'll go in three parts. We'll talk about the story, we'll talk about the surprises that we find here, and then we'll talk about the summons. So the story, the surprises, and the summons. The Christmas story continues. Last week, Eric Mitchell preached from the end of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus has been born, and time passes. And we meet a couple of new characters here for this scene to fill out the cast, to fill out the story. Verse 1. Now, Jesus, after he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, this is the first time we meet Herod the king, Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Another upshot question throughout this passage. Who is the true king? Who's the true king? Is it the wise men? Is it Herod? Or is it Jesus? And here's a spoiler alert. It's not the wise men. Spoiler alert again. They're not even kings. Okay? Over the years, biblical archaeology and scholarship over the centuries has gotten better. These wise men, these magi coming from the east, we will sing sometimes, we three kings of Orient are... It's a great song, keep singing it, but they weren't kings. So who is the true king here? Will the true king stand up? Probably not these wise men, magi. What they were instead from east, from Persia, from Babylon. They were elite astrologers. So astrology, whether then or now, study non-scientifically of the stars. Astro-star-ology, word or message, looking up to the celestial bodies. Zodiac is another form of astrology to see what the heavens have for us. There are also elites, they were leaders, they had a lot of money and resources to take this caravan all the way to Jerusalem and beyond, but they probably aren't the kings. The real competition of crowns, the game of thrones, if you will, is between Jesus and Herod. And Matthew intentionally, I believe, sets it up. In both verse one and verse three, Herod is called king. Again, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Or verse 3. When Herod, not just Herod, but again, so you get the message, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. But look at what is sandwiched in here in verse 2. The Magi ask, where is he who has been born? king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who is he that's been born king of the Jews? Dramatic irony, the original historically people living in Judea at the time, and for us as readers, Herod wasn't born king. But who is the one that was born king? And they have this star, and there's been discussion since ancient times, what's the deal? with that star? Was it a natural occurrence or was it a supernatural occurrence? And for my own money, I think that that question is a little bit of a red herring. It doesn't really matter to me if it was a natural occurrence, it was interpreted as a special star for a special king being born, or a supernatural one. God is our God of both the natural and the supernatural worlds. He can do it either way. It doesn't really bother me if you say it's natural or supernatural, but incidentally, And I'm sorry to say, you you might not understand what I'm about to say for two sentences if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago. But you remember when I talked about the Bible, the last sermon before Advent? We talked about how there's special special revelation and common revelation. So God reveals himself commonly in nature and in the world, but then specially. Okay, from nature and just being a human being, we might realize that there is a God. We're created by this God, and we're in relationship to this God need God's special revelation, the Bible, to know God's love for you and saving purposes in Jesus. Here in this story, we have the star, which will get you to Jerusalem. And hey, if this is going to be a king of the Jewish people, the Israelites, yeah, probably this new king is born in Jerusalem. So you have the star, that's kind of like the general or common revelation, but you need the scriptures. Where exactly is this king from? we go into God's revelation, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures of prophet Micah, starting in verse 4. We read there, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, this is Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they go to Bethlehem. They travel ahead. These three, maybe not kings, but magi or wise men, they keep going on the search for the true king. Verse 9. After listening to the king, there's that word again, Herod, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're so close. And here they are on their search for the true king, going to Bethlehem, and they arrive in verse 11. And verse 11 is a big reveal. That great scene when the three wise men, the three magi, encounter Jesus bearing gifts, worshiping him. And I was thinking over the past couple of weeks as I was preparing this sermon, I think you need to say that in the history of civilization, this scene right here, arguably, is one of the most famous in history, the most depicted, the most recounted in our literature, in our art, in our film, in our song, in our statuary. It might not have happened exactly how the popular picture portrays it, and far be it from me to inadvertently turn your manger mania into major hysteria, but here we go. Jesus probably wasn't a baby. He's probably a little bit older by this point. They weren't kings. They were magi or wise men. Probably far beyond the manger and the stable and that whole scene. So there's probably not animals all around, but that's okay. And yet, I'll read verse 11 again. And allow yourself to linger and imagine yourself with the magi. And going into the house, they saw the child marry with his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And you can feel the blessed, joyous relief of this passage. Finally, we have found the true king. In fulfillment of all of God's ancient promises to a lonely people and to a hurting world, we have found the king." And not just in this passage, but in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, in addition to the verses that I just read here, four other times there's some variation of the prophetic formula. And this was to fulfill what God has spoken by his ancient prophets. And so many more allusions besides the time of fulfillment is here. Finally, we have our king. But there are surprises in store for us too. Don't get too comfortable with this story. Take, for example, worship. Worship is a motif in this passage. We get it in verse 2 and verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 2 again, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Or verse 8, And he sent them, Herod, to Bethlehem, saying, Go, this is a lie, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, Herod says, that I too may come and worship him. And then the Magi, verse 11, they come and fall down and worship this child. That's unusual. It's usual enough for foreign emissaries from different places to come and pay tribute to a new ruler that's born. But Matthew is crystal clear. This isn't paying tribute. This is worship, especially against the background of Judaism, because it was kind of a big deal in ancient Israel in the midst of pluralistic, polytheistic ancient Near East. There is one God and one God only that you worship. It's the first commandment. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Or later on, Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Don't divide your heart between different worships. And one of the arguments for the truth of the Christian story exploding into the world in the first century is that for those very early ancient Christians who were predominantly Jewish, who knew in their bones, worship God alone, when Jesus comes on the scene, so many of them say, yeah, we're going to worship this guy because he truly is God's revelation of a king born into the world, the God-man, the divine human being. We are going to worship this one. And so if you're seeking spiritual realities or really for everybody, this is where you need to be this Christmas season. Can you get there? And you might think to yourself, there's got to be more than just the presence. There's got to be more than just the surface-level peace and warm fuzzies. And that's true. The good news, it's not about the presence or the peace in itself, even. It's about a person. Press in. See if you could find yourself worshiping. If you want to have those touchdown Christmas moments this year, join the Magi. Worship this Jesus. Eric put in a plug during announcements. I'm I'm proud. It was great last year. It's great again this year for the people that worked on our Advent devotionals. Put in the work and use those things. Try them out. They're for Christians and people that are exploring Christianity. Here's some training wheels for you, some rhythms that you can plug into to really know the presence of God in the season of Represence Initiative here at Liberty Collingswood to know this presence. And hear me, you've got to put into the work, among other things. 2021, the year of putting in the work. If you want to grow in racial awareness, put in the work. If you want to grow in molding your body to be a different way, put in the work. If you want to join the great resignation and find a job that more fits you, put in the work. Actualize yourself. Get there. And one of the quirks, and this is true of me as well for Christian spirituality, It makes sense to me, and I know that I need to put in the work in all of these other directions. But then I won't put in the work in terms of pursuing Jesus. But understand, there is a difference between spirituality and magic. Relationship with Jesus is the former and not the latter. Put in the work. And if you're not, and you don't have to use the Liberty Collingswood Advent devotionals, but if you're not putting in the work, whatever it is, don't be surprised if Jesus feels distant to you in this season. Let's press ahead. Another surprise. Not just the fact that this Jesus is worshipped, but also those who are doing the worshipping. Maybe Herod, he has some Jewish ancestry in him. Is he going to worship? No, maybe not a huge surprise. But get this, don't gloss over it. The chief priests and scribes that said the Messiah is coming, potentially right now, to Bethlehem, are also saying, hey, but the Eagles are playing, and you're kind of blocking the TV. They don't go. And especially in this original context, it's a huge surprise that the people that end up worshiping Jesus in this story, they're the magi, they're the wise men. And I think as this story has been told and come to us in the West, There's a romanticization of these wise men, these magi, maybe a little Western chauvinism involved, too. We'll say, oh, these these guys from the East, they're so cool, they're so exotic, a little spicy. But whether it's Old Testament times or New Testament times, astrologers were bad guys. Astrologers were despised. And there is a ton of prophetic rhetoric in the Old Testament that says, okay, all around you there are people that are not worshiping the one true God. They're worshiping the stars instead. You better not do that. For example, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. You are wearied with your many counselors. Let them, the astrologers, stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves even from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. If you follow the stars, there is no one to save you or in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, in the early church, Simon Magus, another astrologer, not seen as a good guy because astrology is bad news. And yes, if we would read this story through a modern lens, we might say that the takeaway is, oh, what Matthew is saying here is that all worldviews, all philosophies, all religions, they're all basically the same thing, and scriptures will work for some people, and stars for others. Just do what feels right and true for you. I don't believe that's what Matthew would say the writer of this gospel. I think he would say instead, don't follow, not condoning astrology, don't follow the Magi's methods, but follow the Magi's Messiah. Get to where they're going. And the surprise here at this point, don't get too comfortable, is that the people that are worshiping Jesus here are the bad guys, the sinners, the messy people. Jesus has a messy family. We talked about that a couple weeks ago from the genealogy, which to us is a summons. Because isn't it true that in our own heart of hearts, we have people, groups of people in our minds, when we think about them, they're unworthy. They're the bad people. Whether it's for political reasons whether it's for religious reasons or religious beliefs or religious practices. Maybe it's for racial and ethnic reasons. Maybe it's for educational reasons. Maybe it's for vocational reasons. Maybe it's for environmental choices reasons. And on down the line, those are the bad people. And you know what? I am better. But here is the twist of the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for us. That Jesus looks at the people that you say, those are the bad people, those are the unworthy people, those are the undeserving people, and Jesus says to them, these are my people. These are my people. St. Augustine, a 4th century church leader, said this about the Christmas story. Jesus then was manifested neither to the learned nor to the righteous, for ignorance belongs to the shepherds of Luke, that's Luke's Christmas story, and impiety to the idolatrous magi of Matthew. But this is Jesus' people. And Christmas is absolutely savage in showing forth here are the haves and here are the have-nots. Here are the good people, here are the bad people. It has a lot to do with money, how much you have of it, how you're using it here in this Advent and Christmas season. But Advent itself turns all of that on its head. Jesus came for the have-nots and for the undeserving. These are my people. And one of the main comforts of the Christmas season is that we are called to come empty. And understand this. Who's the true king, Herod or Jesus? Jesus is the king that gives, and Herod is the king that takes. Jesus is the king that gives, and Herod is the king that takes. Herod is going to take and take and take and take. We'll see more about Herod and just how paranoid and bloodthirsty he is next week. Herod is the king that takes. He wants to kill Jesus. He's frustrated in the story. The story ends, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus, they departed to their own country by another way. And Herod, we'll see, says, well, let's just kill all the kids as much as we're able, and see if we can catch that king in this massacre, in this genocide of small kids. This Herod is frustrated in trying to kill Jesus, but there will be another. A descendant of this Herod, Herod Antipas, who works with Pontius Pilate, who works with the Israelite elite of the time, the chief priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, and they're going to make good and sure that Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. They're going to make sure that happens. And as Jesus here is worshipped as king, towards the cross, Jesus will wear a crown of thorns. And as light, beautiful, beatific, shines down in Bethlehem here, darkness covers the face of the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour on the cross. Yet similarly, as outsiders, Gentiles, worship Jesus here, after Jesus dies on the cross, a Roman centurion, another Gentile, says, truly, surely, this was the Son of God. And this Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sin, to conquer sin and death on the devil on the cross, to give and forgive and gather. To give. Here is my life, myself, my presence, my future, my forgiveness, my life. Here is a new family. Be gathered here and be sent into the world as agents of my peace. Jesus gives, Herod takes. Name your Herods. What are your idols in this holiday season? What's keeping you up at night? What's driving you crazy? What's making you jealous? What's making you angry? Those are your Herods. Those are your idols. And they are going to keep taking from you. Maybe you have certain expectations for the holiday season. I need to measure up. I need to perform. I need to end the year in a certain way. These are lies that you have to measure up and perform. And even performing, apart from the Christmas season, if you perform and identify and try to make this perfect, whether it's political right or political left-seeming person that has it all figured out, At the end of the day, I believe that's going to be exhausting because it's still performing in the language and worldview of the scriptures. It might seem very new, but it's the same old works righteousness at the end of the day. Come to Jesus instead and receive an identity. Receive Jesus' performance and work on your behalf. And this is where we'll wrap up. Be a builder in Jesus' messy family. Be a builder in Jesus' messy family. Buy less, give more, how? Bunker less, bridge more, how? Buy less, give more. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. Spend less on yourself, give more money to other people. By which I mean, spend less on yourself and give more money to other people. And very intentionally, we give you opportunities to do that. Eric gave those opportunities during announcements to give towards other people. Think about how you might do it. It would actually be a great spiritual exercise to go through, whether yourself or in a family context or whatever, and say, if I'm not generous and I don't give to other people, my Christmas could look like this. But because I'm giving and being generous to other people, my Christmas is lowered and looks like this instead. That's a good spiritual discipline. And bunker less and bridge more how. To me, one of the unspoken centripetal forces of Christmas is you just hunker down. You run back to your tribe. You run back to your family. You batten down the hatches so that you can have your own people, however you define that, for a little Christmas joy and Christmas cheer. Be a bridge instead. step. Be a bridge instead. step. How? Maybe that means in family situations where family comes closer during the Christmas season, you're a bridge. You're a person of peace. You're not just going to go back to your corner. You're not just going to flamethrow across the aisle, but you'll be a person of peace. Maybe you're at a Christmas party, and there's somebody at the Christmas party who's different, whether ethnically or otherwise, from everybody else at the party who's not fitting in, you're going to go build a bridge with them. We talked about gender identification a month ago. Maybe somebody that does gender identification differently than you. You're going to build a bridge. You're going to be a person of peace. And yes, relationships aren't forged and forwarded all within the space of a couple of weeks of the Advent season. But take some steps. Build some bridges. And you'll find this final surprise. If on purpose, you make yourself less comfortable, you don't get too comfortable with the Christmas story, you make yourself less comfortable than you otherwise would be, and you'll find, wow, Jesus is really making a difference in my life. Wow, I really am more selfish than I realize. More conceited, more stuck up, more bunkering, more buying for myself. I need this Jesus more than I realized. And I'm finding more comfort in him, the newborn, and still king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the Post-Sunday Blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon, live, speak, and serve at